You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. It's now 1940. We've come from the classification system of Linnaeus to looking at individual organisms, including ourselves, as genetic subjects. We've come from the early microscopist view of things, such as Hooke's crude view of the cells in cork, to looking at structures inside of cells, like chromosomes and the like. We've even come in our very reductionist approach to looking at things like enzymes, molecules of protein that are even too small to be seen with our microscopes. We actually look at them only by their behavior in test tubes. So we've gotten really into this methodological reductionism I talked about earlier. Maybe we've even gotten, as biologists, somewhat epistemologically reductionist, meaning that we're beginning to think, gee, the real way of knowing about living things is by looking at these smallest subunits, looking at genes, looking at enzymes. We've actually gotten into thinking that that may be the way to know things about it. I don't think biology in 1940 had yet gotten to the ontologically reductionist, which we'll come to in a moment. Now, at the beginning of 1940, the end of the decade of the 30s, the question was, what is the gene? Well, you could ask that question four different ways. Let me say it another way. Four different scientists could ask that question. For the geneticist, the question had been answered. If you were strictly a geneticist, you said, well, the gene is the unit of inheritance. And your science was the study of the patterns of inheritance of various traits. So if you were working with peas or fruit fly or mold or humans or whatever organism, as a geneticist, you were simply content to follow these units. But what if you were a chemist? If you were a chemist, you might ask, what is the gene? And you might look for the answer, of what is the gene made? Meaning, what is it composed of chemically? Well, at this point, we already are beginning to understand about what some of the chemicals are that are inside of cells. There's several different things. There's carbohydrates in cells, there are lipids in cells, there are nucleic acids in cells, and there are proteins in cells. So the question from the standpoint of the chemist is, of what is the gene composed? Which one of those components is the gene? You could ask the question if you were an evolutionary biologist. A Darwinian would ask, what's the gene? In terms of, well, if genes are the things that control the traits of species, if genes are the traits of various species, then somehow in evolution, the gene must be influenced if we're looking at species changing. So an evolutionary biologist might say, well, for me, the gene must be somehow involved in evolution. And we'll come to how that comes to be important in a moment. Now, there's a fourth kind of scientist who you might not expect to be asking this question, what is the gene? And that kind of scientist is a physicist. Our physicist friends, remember from the 19th century, who have now gone through the revolution of the beginning of the 20th century, relativity and quantum physics. The physicist might ask, what is the gene? Well, interestingly, one physicist does ask that. His name is Erwin Schrodinger one of the key builders of modern quantum physics and quantum mechanics. Erwin Schrodinger of wave equation fame, the inventor of the idea of how one quantitates at the quantum level. 
Erwin Schrodinger of the famous Schrodinger's cat paradox, which we'll come to later. I keep mentioning it just to tantalize you. Schrodinger writes a small book, which he calls What is Life? It's published in the late 30s. And in this book, Schrodinger, now famous for quantum mechanics, poses the following question. If the gene, which he now knows is some location in the cell, whatever the gene is in that cell, if it is able to survive generation from generation as a unit relatively intact, remember our purple flower color reappearing and our white flower color reappearing later, if the gene can do that, in spite of the known physical laws, the laws of thermodynamics that argue that things in the real world are subject to all kinds of dissipative forces, entropy for instance, the gene seems to survive intact in spite of that, Schrodinger argued, that therefore the gene must be something different than we've thought of before. So he actually challenged physicists to be interested in the gene because they might learn new principles of physics from the gene. See, Schrodinger had already developed quantum mechanics, so he's now looking for greener pastures. His book was published in the late 30s, and he gave seminars on this, and one of the people who heard his early seminars on this in the 30s was a young physics student, Max Delbruck. And Max Delbruck will enter our story in a little bit as the father of modern molecular biology, because Max Delbruck is influenced, in effect, by Schrodinger's book and his talks about what is the gene. Now, let's step back a little bit and see what was progressing in the discovery of what the gene might be. In the 1920s, at Rockefeller University, a scientist named Griffith was trying to develop a vaccine for pneumonia, pneumonia that's caused by a bacteria. And vaccines were now known. Vaccination had been present since the work of Jenner in the 18th century and progressed on to the work of Pasteur in the 19th century who made many such vaccines. And one of the ways you make a vaccine, which is to basically protect people against a disease, is by giving them something that will cause their immune system to have a reaction to that thing without giving them the disease. One kind of thing you can give them is the organism that causes the disease but killed, so it's no longer alive. Now their body will react to the presence of the organism without them getting the disease. So Griffith was in the process of working on a vaccine for pneumonia. He had taken some of the bacterium which causes pneumonia and he had killed it by heating it, by boiling it. And he showed that when he injected this into his experimental test animal, which was a mouse, that it didn't cause pneumonia. He also had, as a control, a non-pathogenic version of the same bacterium which when you injected it live into the mice didn't cause disease either. Now when you inject of course the pathogen, the live disease-causing version of it, it would kill the mice. So he had three conditions. The live pathogen which killed the mice, the heat-killed pathogen which did not kill the mice, and of course the different version, genetically different strain that was not pathogenic which did not kill the mice. He did one interesting experiment as a second control. He decided, what if I mix the heat-killed pathogen one with the live non-pathogen and together inject them into the mouse? And he did that as sort of an extra control. What surprised him is that the mouse died, and it died from pneumonia. And when he looked to see what bacterium was present alive in that mouse, he found that it was now the pathogen. 
he found that the non-pathogenic version of the bacterium had been converted into the pathogen. And he repeated this over and over again, and he finally called this process transformation. He said, the non-pathogen has been transformed into the pathogen. Now, this was in the 20s. Scientists realized that whatever was causing transformation was causing a stable genetic change in this organism. So therefore, whatever was causing transformation might have something to do with the gene because it had to do with genetics. So the experiment was on to see what was causing transformation. And it was some 20 years later that another team at Rockefeller University, this time led by Oswald Avery, decided to look in detail at this phenomenon of transformation. And Oswald Avery did kind of the ultimate methodological reductionism on the problem, okay? He simply said, let's take this pathogen that causes pneumonia and let's take it apart. We'll take out all of the different molecules that make it up and we'll put them in separate tubes. So he took out the lipids, the carbohydrates, the DNA, which is one kind of nucleic acid, the RNA, which is another kind of nucleic acid, and the proteins. And he put them all into separate tubes. He separated them. Now he said, in his sort of reductionist approach, which one of these, if I add it back to the non-pathogen, will cause it to be transformed? It's a very simple-minded kind of experiment. I've broken it into pieces. Now, which piece causes transformation? And when he did that, the only fraction of all the fractions he had which would cause transformation was the fraction which contained the DNA. So Avery and his colleagues could argue, if they wished, that DNA is in fact the transforming principle of Griffith. Now, did Avery argue that strongly? Well, he published a paper in 1944 with his colleagues in which that was stated, but he could not argue it strongly. Why couldn't he argue it strongly? Well, the reason was the chemist's conception of DNA. As we look around us, we can see that nature is very diverse. And therefore, the genes which are responsible for the expression of all these traits must be very complex. But DNA was thought to be too simple a molecule in its structure to be accountable for all of these traits. And this was because a chemist of the 1920s had come up with a model for DNA structure that was very, very simple. It said DNA is simply a repeating structure containing four different what are called nitrogenous bases, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine, given the letters A, G, C, and T. And he said there's just four of those repeated over and over and over and over again. Now, it was known that DNA was part of the chromosome, but the other portion of the chromosome, the other component, was protein molecules. Now, protein molecules were known to be complex. It was known that there were 20 different amino acids for every protein. It was known that every protein kind you looked at was different in amino acid composition. So chemists argued, well, it must be that the proteins are the genes and the DNA in the chromosome is just kind of a scaffolding on which the genes are hung. So when Avery and his colleagues did their work in the 40s and came to the conclusion, as their data led them, that DNA must be responsible for transforming, then it was difficult for them to argue this in their paper because no one could accept DNA as the genetic material in the early 1940s. Now, that paper is published, and now things are moving more speedily than in the days of Mendel. In Mendel's case, it took 40 years before his work was discovered. In the case of Avery and his colleagues, it took only about 10 years. 
In the succeeding 10 years, World War II comes to an end. And right after World War II, there is a blossoming of scientific effort in the country. Within this blossoming exists Max Delbruck, who had come to this country from Germany during the war, escaping the Nazi tyranny. And basically, Max Delbruck, still remembering the words of Erwin Schrodinger, was very interested in starting to work in genetics. But rather than work on fruit flies, or work on molds, or work on peas, Delbruck, the physicist, felt, I need something very elementary to work on. Remember, he's coming out of physics, which works with atoms and subatomic particles. So he wanted something which was so basic, so elementary, you could say it was almost the simplest of living things. He wanted something that was so simple that a physicist's mind could grasp it. So Delbruck chose a group of people to work with him, some of whom were physicists, some of whom were geneticists, some chemists, some physicians. And he chose to work on an organism, and I use the word organism here a little loosely because not everybody would agree that it's an organism. He chose a virus. Remember I said earlier, viruses were the only kind of life that didn't have cells as its basis. So it's a little difficult to call them organisms. But Delbruck chose a virus, a particular kind of virus that infects only bacterial cells. They're called bacteriophage, or phage for short. They had been discovered in the teens in France and in England simultaneously. And they had received some popularity during the 20s as a potential antibacterial agent. So if you were infected with a bacterium, the doctor might give you some of these viruses that would go in and kill the bacterium. Well, it turns out they don't work that way very effectively. The bacterium can mutate to be resistant to the virus, and your immune system can develop an immunity to the virus that's inserted into you. So the fad of using bacteriophage as an antibiotic agent fell out of fashion very quickly. The only remnant we have of it, in fact, is a popular novel written by Sinclair Lewis called Aerosmith, in which the lead character, Dr. Aerosmith, is actually working on this project of developing phage as an antibiotic. That's a bit of literary history. So by the late 1940s, bacteriophage are sitting literally on the shelf in science. Max Delbruck chooses these very simple viruses as his research tool. And so the group around him comes to be called the phage group. They work at Caltech in Pasadena and at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island in New York, and they alternate between those two places. Now, attracted to this group are a variety of people, including, by the way, some people who have left the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb project of the 40s. One of them, Leo Zillard, left in protest, in fact, and became a phage biologist. Others left at the end of the war when they were casting around for things to do in science, and they were attracted by the idea of a physicist doing biology. Within this group were two people, Martha Chase and Alfred Hershey, and they did a very famous experiment, famous now. Using this virus, they were able to show that the DNA that's contained in that virus particle, which is the genetic information of that virus, is all that is necessary to make the next generation of virus particles. In other words, they could show in a very cleverly designed experiment, which employed for the first time in biology, radioactive forms of biological molecules, the radioactivity being, again, a byproduct of the Manhattan Project and the reactors that have been developed. Using radioactively labeled or tagged molecules, they could follow the fate of this DNA and show that it was all that was necessary for this virus to produce a next generation. Now, they published their experiment in 1952. 
When the paper was published, it was instantly accepted. In fact, before the paper was published, everybody already knew that DNA was the genetic material. They were just waiting for somebody to demonstrate it conclusively. And that's what the Hershey Chase experiment did. Now, why 10 years after Avery is suddenly the idea of DNA as the genetic material perfectly acceptable? Well, in the meantime, in the late 1940s, our ideas about the structure of DNA had changed. Chemists had gotten more sophisticated in their analysis. And in fact, they could see using very sophisticated techniques actually developed by one man at Columbia University, Erwin Shargaff, they could see that DNA was in fact a very complicated molecule, at least as complicated as proteins, if not more so. That it wasn't just the simple repeating unit of the 20s and 30s that people thought, but it was very complex. Now that DNA could be seen to be a complex molecule, the Hershey-Chase experiment, and in retrospect, the Avery experiment with his colleagues, was perfectly clear. DNA is the genetic material. This is really the birth of modern biology at this point that we're witnessing. That the understanding that the genetic material chemically is the molecule DNA. DNA, by the way, stands now for deoxyribose nucleic acid. Not going to get into what that means with you right now, but just remember that word and we'll come back to an alternate word, a different kind of nucleic acid in a moment. Now that that's established, sort of the golden age of molecular biology, what people look back on now is the golden age of molecular biology ensues. From about 1952 until the middle of the decade of the 60s, maybe even towards the end of that decade, come a series of discoveries about the nature of the gene. Each of these discoveries, in turn, is a validation of this reductionist approach, a validation of the decision to look at the subunits that make up life, a validation of the decision to use simple organisms, a validation of the decision to plow more and more ever deeply into what those simple organisms are made of and what those molecules are made of. And so it begins to be even more firmly entrenched that the epistemological reductionism is the way to go. That, in other words, what we need to know about life, we can learn from looking at these simplest structures. So philosophically now, biology is buying very much into this because of the success of molecular biology. In fact, we're beginning to border on the ontologically reductionist. We're beginning to think and some biologists are beginning to speak about the nature of biology, the nature of living systems, as being all determined by the nature of these simplest structures. I'll come to what I mean by that in a moment. Following on the heels of the Hershey Chase experiment in 52, very rapidly comes the race for the discovery of how DNA actually looks. What is the physical form it takes? Okay? What is the structure of it? We knew its composition. It's made of sugar, the ribose sugar, phosphate. It's an acid, so it has acidic properties. It's a very long polymer, we knew that. And we knew it consisted of these four bases that I mentioned earlier, adenine, thymine, guanosine, and cytosine, abbreviated A, G, C, and T. Now, what we didn't know is how it exists in three dimensions. What does it look like if you could see it? By the way, it's very difficult to see DNA. It's much smaller than the light microscope. 
It's much smaller than the electron microscope can see. In fact, when we visualize it, even attempt to visualize it in the electron microscope, we're actually looking at not DNA, but some artifact of DNA, some replica we've created of it. And so we often confuse that replica or models we build of DNA with DNA itself. So we can't actually say that we see DNA. What we can see are representations of it. So the race was on to discover what DNA might look like. This race was taking place in two places, one at Caltech University in Pasadena, led by the already Nobel Prize winning scientist Linus Pauling. He had won the Nobel Prize earlier for his discoveries about the structures of proteins. So he was off to now find the structure of DNA. And the other team, a very unlikely team, at Cambridge University in England, actually at the equivalent of our National Institutes of Health, which is associated with Cambridge, the MRC unit at Cambridge. Now that unit consisted of a very famous set of prominent biologists who led it, who were all crystallographers, meaning that they had been for decades making crystal structures out of molecules found from living cells, so proteins, for instance, into crystals. And then by deflecting x-rays through those crystals, they could learn the structure or what they thought would be the structure of the protein. And they would build models of how proteins look. A Kendrew was one of these people. So into this unit came two young scientists, one a British scientist, Francis Crick, and the other an American, James Watson. And together they decided to tackle this problem of the structure of DNA. Now, interestingly, neither Watson nor Crick did any experiments while they were in the laboratory at Cambridge. What they did was to analyze the data of other people. For instance, some of the best X-ray diffraction patterns of DNA were being taken by a young scientist then in London, Rosalind Franklin, in the laboratory of Maurice Wilkins. And so they went and looked at her pictures. They looked at her data. And Watson and Crick went back to Cambridge and started to build models. And they used for their model building, literally constructing wire structures with the dimensions in big terms of what they imagined would be in the atomic level, using the data of Rosalind Franklin, using information from the man who was able to work out the complexity of DNA, Erwin Shargaff. Using that information, they assembled a structure, which we now know today as the double helix. Watson and Crick showed through their analysis of this data and published a paper which said this, that DNA consists of two strands coiled around each other, each strand being a helix, like a staircase, and the other strand a helix also, so it was a double helix, in a coil. And these were very, very long molecules. They also said that this coil had certain properties, and one of the very important properties it has is that the bases, the A, G, C's, and T's that make it up, exist in very specific relationships to each other. For instance, every A base is always opposite on the other strand to a T. So it makes a stair step in the ladder. And every G base in the helix is always next to a C. So they said A pairs with T, and G pairs with C. And this data came from the results of Erwin Shargaff, who had shown these kinds of relationships in his experiments at Columbia. So using that rule, they were able to build this model 
And there's a famous picture of them standing in the laboratory in Cambridge, and Crick is pointing to the model, this wire structure. He's pointing with a slide rule, as though the slide rule somehow had something to do with building the model. And later he said in an interview that the photographer asked him to point with something, and the most convenient thing was a slide rule sitting on the table. So he points to the model with the slide rule, and James Watson is sitting in front. They built this model and published this paper with these AT and GC base pairs. Now notice, one strand has a series of A's, G's, and C's, C's and T's. The other strand next to it has a series of A's, G's, C's, and T's. And wherever an A is in one strand, there will be a T in the strand opposite. And whenever a G is in one strand, there'll be a C opposite. Now that is a very important feature of the model. And in the paper that they published in 1954 in the journal Nature, they said, in very typically dry British fashion, it has not escaped our intention, the implications of this model for the replication of the genetic material. What they meant by that was that if DNA is the genetic material, and if we go back to Mendel and say that the DNA contains the genes and the genes are going to be passed on to succeeding generations so that succeeding generations look like previous generations, or if we talk about mitosis, where cells are dividing and daughter cells are genetically identical to the parent cells, then as the DNA that's present in those cells replicates, by replicates we mean makes copies of itself, the copies will always be the same. Because wherever there's an A in one strand, there'll be a G in the other strand. So their model had implications for how the genetic material would work how it would replicate, and they published it as such. This was an immense breakthrough, and for this, of course, Watson and Crick and Wilkins, Rosalind Franklin had since died, received the Nobel Prize. Their model then exploded into science all of the results of the golden age of molecular biology, the end of the 50s and throughout the 60s. All of the work that ensued followed from the definition of biology that was given by their model. So people began to look, for instance, for the enzyme that catalyzes the replication of DNA, and that was found. People began to look for the exact mechanism in which DNA was replicated. How does it happen in the cell? And that was discovered or uncovered. People began to look for where else DNA was present and what other cells would have it, and was DNA structured the same way in all cells, not just in bacteria or in viruses? And that was discovered to be true an explosion of information. Watson and Crick remained at the forefront of this, and in fact still are today. Both of them are still active scientists. What they did was interesting. They took part in the next series of events which were very key to where we are today in biology. Remember, we've been methodologically reductionist. We have become epistemologically reductionist by saying we can learn from doing this in a reductionist fashion. And we're about to take that step of becoming ontologically reductionist as biologists. What Watson and Crick did was to participate in the experiments that went on to show how it is that DNA, and if DNA is the genetic material, the genes are expressed. Now let's just review our definition of the gene, philosophically. Originally the gene was defined as Mendel as the unit of inheritance, a mathematical kind of concept. With Morgan and Sturtevant, the gene became a location on a chromosome. 
as chromosomes were identified as synonymous with genes in some way. Now a physical location. With the work of Avery and then Hershey and Chase, the gene became identified as DNA, now a chemical definition. And with Watson and Crick, the gene becomes identified as a sequence of bases, the A's, G's, C's, and T's. Now, this is a very critical juncture because Crick and Watson begin talking about the gene as information. We're entering a time in the philosophical growth of the West when philosophy is leaving behind even its Cartesian roots and moving into the realm of what we call analytical philosophy. And very much at the forefront of this is the idea of signs and symbols, language. Remember we said that physics had a language. Physics had the language of mathematics. Biology is still casting around for a language. Obviously, Mendel tried to give it a mathematical tone, but now we know the gene is not just simply a mathematical construct, it's a real physical thing. So we're casting around for some language symbols to use, some way of having more than just a theory, also a language. Crick proposes what he calls the central dogma of molecular biology. Now, it's an interesting choice of words. Picture Crick at the middle of the 60s, writing this paper in the rush of enthusiasm of the Nobel Prize of all the things that are happening in molecular biology saying dogma. This is a dogma. Now later on Crick says it was a poor choice of words, he said in an interview, but nonetheless it stayed around. It gives the flavor to this developing field of molecular biology of one that is now becoming more of a system of thought than just a science, right? So there's a dogma to it now. Okay. So Crick says the central dogma. In the central dogma of molecular biology, Crick describes the flow of information in biology. He describes a flow of information going from DNA, the molecule that is the gene, to an intermediate molecule called RNA, which stands for ribonucleic acid, to a molecule called protein, which are enzymes and other structural components of our cells. Crick uses this term, flow of information. Now, why choose information? Kind of an interesting side note. If the gene is, in fact, the language of this sequence of bases in DNA, A, G, C, and T, then if that's so, and we know that the gene is eventually going to determine a protein, we saw that early on in the century, then there must be some way that what's in the DNA becomes protein. So early on, the people like Crick and his associates realize that the gene must somehow contain a code. There must somehow be information that's encoded in this gene that's going to be moved into and used for the construction of protein. Now, the use of the word code is fascinating. Once they realized that there was a code involved, Watson and Crick and the other scientists involved in this, there was a small group of them in Cambridge and in the United States, turned for help to people who were used to using and working with codes. They were cryptologists. It was after World War II. There were a lot of cryptologists floating around with nothing to do. So they got the help of cryptologists. In addition, there was a new field coming into being, the field of cybernetics, which has now led to our computers. And the combination of cryptology and cybernetics lent the language, that is the English words we use to describe molecular biology, words like code, information, transcription, translation, encoding, 
All of these words come to us in molecular biology from the lexicography of cryptology and cybernetics. So molecular biologists were in search of what they called the genetic code. This information flow that Crick talked about, this flow of information from DNA to RNA to protein, began to be the object of everyone's attention in the research that was being done. Notice we've gotten now completely reductionist. We're now looking at only the molecules involved, at DNA, RNA, and protein. And so, actually in very rapid time, period of about 10 years, it was uncovered how DNA is made into RNA, the process that's called transcription of the information, and how RNA is made into protein, or translated into protein. Now, the process of doing that is kind of interesting. Consider DNA as the archival copy of the information, if we can use kind of a library analogy here. Let's say that DNA contains plans to build a sailboat. The archive in the library has the plans you want to use to build a sailboat. So you go into the library and you say to the librarian, I want to build a sailboat, so let me take out this book with all the plans I need to build a sailboat. And the librarian says, no, that's the only copy we have of that, and we have to preserve it, because if anything happens to it, we never can build another sailboat. But what we'll let you do is take the book over to a Xerox machine and make a copy of it. So you do that, and you make a copy of all the plans you need to build a sailboat. The archival book is the DNA. The Xerox copies you make are the RNA. RNA is a throwaway molecule. It's a molecule that the cell makes and then discards, just as your Xerox copy are copies that you make and you can destroy later. You haven't destroyed the original book. So now you take your plans out of the library. For the library, read nucleus of the cell, and you take them to where you're going to build your sailboat. For your purposes, read cytoplasm of the cell. You move out there into your workshop, and you have a workbench, and you set your plans on the workbench, and you assemble all the parts you need, the nails, the screws, the wood, the paint, and you begin following the plans and building the sailboat. Well, the cell does exactly the same thing. The workbench of the cell is a structure called the ribosome in the cytoplasm. And the RNA, which is the plan for building something, comes to that workbench, and all the parts that are needed, in this case all the different amino acids, are brought to that workbench and assembled into a protein. What I've just described for you is the process of translation, or protein synthesis as we call it. So the three steps of information flow are, first DNA to DNA itself, that's replication, that's step one, that's how cells pass on the information, then DNA to RNA, which is transcription, then RNA to protein, which is translation. So Watson proposed this, and then in very short order, all of the steps were discovered, were worked out biochemically. In fact, the genetic code was broken. You can now look in any elementary text of biology and find a dictionary of the genetic code. It tells you that in the DNA, every three bases means a particular amino acid for a particular gene. So the bases ATG mean methionine, the bases TTT mean phenylalanine, for instance. And every three bases means a particular amino acid as part of this code. Very powerful information to have at your disposal if you have this dictionary. Because this means that now, if you wish to take and read the genetic information in a cell, you simply have to know the sequence of bases in the DNA. And then you can take your dictionary and you can read it. Notice that we now have a language. We have a language. It's not mathematics. 
It's molecular biology. It's not numbers, it's A's, G's, C's, and T's. We suddenly have a science with a language, in effect. This also has powerful implications for our philosophical approach to the situation. Not only have we been methodologically reductionist in getting here, we've chosen to look at the smallest subunits, not only have we been epistemologically reductionist in getting here, we've said that what we need to know about life is the smallest thing, but now some scientists are even becoming ontologically reductionist in the sense that they're saying everything about this is going to be specified by this sequence. Everything about you as a person I can read from your DNA. Now, the next step in the sequence of events involves changes in the DNA. If I look at the DNA of an organism and learn the sequence of bases, I learn something about its genetics. But let's say I looked at the DNA of one of Mendel's purple flower pea plants, and then I looked at the DNA of one of his white flower pea plants. It turns out I would see a slight difference between those two plants. And the difference I would see would be the difference between the purple allele and the white allele. And the difference would in fact be a difference in the sequence of bases at that critical region of the chromosome where those genes were located. So alleles of a gene turn out to be different forms of a gene because the sequence of bases is different. Now we know about other differences in genes. For instance, there will be mutants of organisms that occur where something doesn't work right. A protein is non-functional. Mutations in humans like sickle cell anemia are a result of the fact that in those patients all of their hemoglobin fails to function normally. It was shown that this was simply due to a change in the DNA of those patients such that they had a different sequence of bases which produced a different protein, a different kind of protein, a different form of the protein. When that happens, when a mutation happens, it's clear that some change has taken place in that individual. Now, people working with things like viruses and bacteriophage and with bacterial cells themselves could show that these mutations that occur, these changes in the DNA, could be produced in the laboratory experimentally or could be found in nature if one looked around enough and looked hard enough. One could find these differences. And it turns out that these changes in DNA were seen to occur in a relatively random fashion along the length of the chromosome, along the length of the DNA. One could find mutations occurring in a relatively random way. So it appears, I say appears, that these mutations are due to random events, either random events that are a result of laboratory manipulation or random events in nature. In fact, we know that mutations arise in nature because of the interaction of DNA in organisms with mutagenizing radiation. For instance, cosmic rays coming from outer space will interact with DNA and cause base changes, these mutational events. So the idea of mutation came into being. That is that DNA and its sequence could be changed by mutation, that the change would result in a change in the organism, and that the mutation itself was something that occurred as kind of a random process. Now this idea of the random process of the mutation is the real interesting part here. Now remember, sitting in the background of this story have been our Darwinists, our evolutionary biologists. Remember back a century earlier or so, Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species and proposes the force of evolution as something called natural selection. 
Since the time of Darwin, up until the time I'm speaking of, the time of molecular biology, evolutionary biologists had to be content with examining the record of the Earth for evidence that evolution occurred. Evolution is an interesting theory. Evolution is a theory that you cannot prove by doing an experiment. You can't make evolution happen in a laboratory. You can't make speciation happen. You can't see one species evolving from another. What you can see is a record of that having happened. You can see, for instance, in the fossil record, evidence that earlier species have existed and that from those earlier species later in the fossil record in geological time different species are present and later still different ones and you can draw relationships between those that suggest that over long courses of geologic time evolution has indeed occurred but you can't do the experiment to repeat that all you can do is observe the result so evolutionary biologists had been looking at things like the fossil record, at phylogenetic relationships as they are called between species, and trying to understand how the theory of Darwin would explain these differences that were observed. Along comes DNA and the genetic material. Suddenly, the evolutionary biologist has in front of him or her something to hold on to. If the gene specifies the traits of the organism, if those traits determine, in fact, how the organism interacts with its environment, because it determines things about that organism that allow it to interact, then the evolutionary biologist could say, well, if natural selection is a force such that it selects for organisms that have certain characteristics given certain environmental conditions, then the thing upon which natural selection acts could very well be the gene. And since differences in genes arise by mutation, and since differences and since mutations arise in some random process, then one could argue that natural selection acts as a force on this population of genes, the differences of which have risen by a set of random events. Let me repeat that. One could argue that natural selection acts on this population of genes in an organism, the differences in which population have arisen by a set of random events. Now comes the ontological problem. If all that we are is specified by this sequence of bases, then all that we are arose by this random set of events, according to this way of thinking. In fact, Jacob and Monod, two French scientists who worked on the very early parts of how genes work in biological systems, were very expressive about this. Monod himself wrote a book called Chance and Necessity, in which he puts forth the idea that there is only random chance in nature, that all the variation we see, all that we see in nature, just arose by a series of random events that produced different versions of genes and over evolutionary timescales were selected for by virtue of the environment in which they happen to work or function best, survive best. So this view of the ontology of reductionism, the basic ontology of the gene being the essence of what we are, began to arise out of this push during the latter part of the 60s to understand mutations, understand genes, and finally to tie genes into evolution in what has become known as neo-Darwinism.
Neo-Darwinism is the phrase used. And so now we have a situation where modern biology in its sort of birth as molecular biology is now feeding evolution exactly what it needs. We have the theory of evolution, we have the language of modern biology, and so now we have biology coming of age as a science, in effect, achieving what had happened for physics two centuries before, that is, having a language and a theory okay, by which it can be worked. This is a very critical juncture in terms of biology because biology can now, in effect, step back from its lab bench and look around and say, aha, we have come of age. We are now a mature science. We are just like physics. We have theory. We have language. We have everything it needs to take. And look, we've made it. Now remember what's happened to physics in the meantime. The arrogance of the physics of the 19th century that everything was done, everything was Newtonian, determined, and reductionist, was rapidly displaced by the early developments of the 20th century to where now uncertainty and complexity were the name of the game. But biology, with its eyes focused on the lab bench, with its eyes focused on the fossil field, had forgotten that, had missed the point. So now in this rush to say, we've got it, we're now a science, it comes out of this period of introspection to say, we are reductionist and deterministic, as though that were the philosophy of science by which one worked. Now, true biology has matured, but has it matured, therefore, in the right philosophical stance? That's an issue I want to come back to with you a bit later in this series. For now, let's look at the situation. Molecular biology is working on basically bacterial systems and developing all of this knowledge about how genes work. Evolutionary biologists are taking their cue from that and saying, well, if that's how genes work, then this is how evolution works. The golden age of molecular biology yields this wealth of information, which at the time, people like Jacob and Minot were saying, applies to basically everything in the world. A famous quote from Jacob was, what's true for E. coli, the bacterium, is true for an elephant. Semi-arrogant stance, you might say, for biologists. And so by the end of the 70s, a wealth of information. But notice that everybody had been working with prokaryotic cells, the cells that I said were the simplest, and their viruses. It was difficult to work with eukaryotic cells. That's us, that's mice, that's this plant, this tree, this Palo Verde tree next to me. These are difficult organisms to work with. First of all, this tree doesn't grow in a laboratory, it grows out here in the desert. I don't grow in a laboratory. The mice, different story. You can house them in a laboratory, but they're much more complex systems. They have longer lifetimes, they're harder to feed, you can't define them as cleanly. And so eukaryotic molecular biology kind of lagged behind. By the end of the 70s, techniques were becoming more and more prevalent for working with eukaryotic cells in the laboratory. Not the whole organism necessarily, but the cells themselves, which made them perfectly approachable by the reductionist kind of paradigm. And so, by the beginning of the 70s, we started moving into the era of eukaryotic molecular biology. Interestingly, much of what was learned about eukaryotes turned out to be similar for what one saw in prokaryotes. They have DNA as genetic material, they transcribe it into RNA, they translate it into proteins, all the same. They have mutations that make different versions of genes, that's the same. But some very basic assumptions about molecular biology had to be discarded for eukaryotes. The way in which DNA replicates, the way in which it's organized, the way in which it's actually made into RNA showed to be very, very different for eukaryotes. In fact, we're still in the process of learning this. And what we're learning is that 
All of these things that happen in eukaryotes are actually reflective of their complexity. They work as systems rather than as individual molecules more often than not. We have systems of control of transcription, for instance, that produce the pattern of variety we see in just one multicellular organism like ourselves. And so the world of the prokaryotic molecular biologists of the 50s and 60s suddenly came crashing in on them when they realized that everything that's true for E. coli is not necessarily true for an elephant, and that eukaryotic cells are actually quite complex, and there is much more to be learned than was thought in the original experiments. Now, it wasn't that everybody was willing to throw away the molecular biology learned, it was that it now needed to be modified and turned into something different. Now, in turning it into something different, the same reductionist, deterministic, philosophical approach was taken. I would say that it's probably because most scientists working in the discipline don't really stop to reflect on the philosophy they're using. They're too busy doing experiments. It's really time-consuming to do these experiments, believe me. And so it was that the reflection on the philosophy doesn't take place. And so we move naturally from prokaryotic systems, bacteria and their viruses, into eukaryotic systems, mice, the fruit fly, ourselves, with the same kind of philosophical approach. That is, everything there is to know can be learned methodologically by reductionism, epistemologically by reductionism, and is ontologically true. In other words, reductionism again. And so, molecular biology reaches that level in the early part of the 70s. Now, the next time we come back and talk, we will talk about what has happened in the last couple of decades. Two developments of interest to speak about. One is the burgeoning area of biotechnology, sort of the ultimate expression of that reductionist flavor. And the second is the area of the Human Genome Project itself this massive project to sequence the entire human genome that stems directly out of both the biotechnology ability of molecular biology as well as the reductionist philosophical approach of the molecular biologist. So until next time when we talk about biotechnology, that'll be it for today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.